Hey, behind the proser. I know you're like, what? I didn't hear from her in almost a whole month and now she's back twice in one week? Yes, I'm back because we have things to do. People are dropping books, they're getting book deals, they're writing essays, they're having free secrets of publishing panels in New York City, and they're not waiting for me, so I gotta get it together. I told you I had a lineup of guests for you, and one of them is Susan Shapiro. You've heard me talk about her many times on the show. I call her New York City's writer-in-residence. She was my thesis advisor at the New School. And in this candid interview, she talks to me about how she has been so successful. She has 10 books in the last 10 years. Over 85 of her students have landed book deals. I would like to be in the first 100. I'm going to put that out there. Um, And I felt like it was important for you to hear this interview today because... On September 11th, which is Friday, she will be giving her Secrets of Publishing panel featuring one of those 85 students, Aspen Mattis, who has a book deal out on, has a book coming out in this September, this month, on HarperCollins. So if you're in the New York City area, please do me a favor and, and do what I would do if I was there which is go to the event, okay? It's at the new school. Go to the episode page for a link to Susan Shapiro's site. You'll find all the information there that you need. And if you're listening to this after September 11th, never fear because Susan Shapiro has classes all year round. She has them um, at the new school. She has them outside of the new school in Greenwich Village. So you can really get in where you fit in. All right. Without further ado, here is New York City's writer-in-residence, Susan Shapiro. I'm so happy that I can talk to you, Susan Shapiro. You were my mentor at the New School. I've called you the official writer-in-residence in New York City. I feel like if you're a writer in New York and you don't know she's Shapiro, <laughs> you're doing something wrong. Uh, but so, congratulations on your latest novel, What's Never Thank Said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, so, I want to start out asking you some general questions. Um, you have an MFA in poetry, you're a journalist, you have memoirs, and you also write fiction. Uh, with all the genres, do you have a preference? Well, I started out getting my MFA in poetry. So poetry is my first love, but I make it very clear um, in my writing that I was a failed poet. And uh, luckily, it turned out that the same subjects that I was obsessed about in my poetry translated to prose. And you can actually make a living doing um, essays and articles that wound up being memoirs. So um, I would say... I prefer nonfiction. My family calls my nonfiction fiction, and I love the idea in What's Never Said of a memoirist writing fiction about poetry. Um, And also, I'm not really the type, like a lot of people say, I am a journalist. I am a novelist. So in my 33-year career, I've had to reinvent myself every five years to keep making a living and to shake things up. So I cross genres, and I think a lot of 
authors do that. A lot of authors have to make a living. For example, John Updike wrote novels, short stories, art criticism, bad poetry, a play. He even illustrated his own New Yorker uh, pieces. So, so I feel like by being um, by being able to compromise the external style, um, it, it it's given me a lot more. Um, you know, I've gotten a lot more juice and a lot more luck with my writing. So I think, um, you know, I actually say that to my students too. In the in the course of a 15 week class, we do 14 different assignments in all different areas because I think that gives you more of a chance to find something you could succeed at. Mm. When you were working on what's never what's never said, is was there a part of the novel that was most challenging for you to write? Um, yes. What happens is that I normally, I wrote three memoirs in my voice, Five Men Who Broke My Heart, Lighting Up, and Only As Good As Your Word. And I really love that, but I felt like I'd already done that. And those were all published in my 40s. So I wanted to do something different. And uh, one of the ways I had reinvented myself recently was um, when I couldn't get a book deal and was really depressed and, and having trouble, I wound up co-authoring two books by men. One was Unhooked, which was with my addiction specialist, an addiction book. And the other one was The Bosnia List, which I wrote with my Bosnian physical therapist who'd survived the war when he was 12. So I, I had spent several years um, writing first person in a man's voice. So I really thought for what's never said, um, I didn't want to do the same thing I always did, which is first person female. So I decided um, just to shake it up and see, I did this in third person and I switched back and forth between um, the female's point of view and the male point of view. So the two characters were Lila Penn and Daniel Wildman. And that was, I thought it was a great idea, but my writing group had trouble um, with the Daniel character because they didn't like him. And I had in my head, I love Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, so I had in my head sort of a brilliant, neurotic Jewish guy, but I, I don't necessarily know, like when you read Saul Bellow or Philip Roth, um, they could pull off unlikable, crazy, lecherous characters, um, you know, really well, but I was afraid I wasn't quite pulling it off. Um, but then finally, um, what I realized and what a lot of people agreed, editors and agents agreed, was that you don't necessarily have to love Daniel for the book to work. You just have to understand him. So I made it really clear. I, I, I tried to make his motives really clear. What did he want and what was motivating him? And then I think the book worked. But I will say writing uh, writing in the head of a male character in fiction was a huge challenge. And, you know, I don't know that I was successful, but at least I finished. You know, I pulled it off sort mm -hmm. of. So. Well, I, you know, in Daniel's character, and, and I know you, he, he feels like a male, obviously. You know, just for whatever you did to him, he comes off as male. So I think you did it successfully. Yeah, I and think I got, I mean, I, I hope I got the voice right, but... Again, I, you know, it's a whole interesting question of does a character have to be likable? And, and, and clearly with Gone Girl and there's, you know, there's sort of a whole uh, Sabbath theater. There's certainly a whole, um, you know, category of books where the, um, you know, where the, the hero or the heroine wasn't likable. Um, but I do think they have to be understandable. So, I, you know, you have to know what their motives are. You have, they have to be engaging. And people did say he was engaging. Um, you know, on the other hand, maybe it was more Lila's book. So that helped me, too. Mm -hmm. You know, on one, as you're saying that, I think it is this part where uh, Daniel gets the fellowship to go um, to Israel, right? Mm -hmm. And he wants Lila to go with him, and she's kind of like, uh, wait, what are you talking about? No, we can't do that. 
And I felt sorry for Daniel at that point, even though I knew that, all right, this is kind of maybe ridiculous, but I felt like I guess the book had been ramping up, ramping up, ramping up for them being together. And then, you know, he's all of a sudden all caught up in it. Um, right. And the again, other, I felt sorry for him. Good. And the other thing that I was really having fun with in a way was, so these are two people who've devoted their life to um, words and writing and language who completely miscommunicate for 30 years. They just completely miscommunicate. They cannot communicate. They really care about each other, and they just they just clash constantly. And even 30 years later, they're clashing, and they actually don't even tell their spouse the truth So, so about what happened between them, So even though I think they have good marriages. So the whole idea was actually fun to play with as somebody who, um, you know, who's, who's written for 33 years. I love the idea that basically everybody in this crowd and even their spouses – completely miscommunicate and can't speak to each other and don't can't get across how they're really feeling. So in a way that was a, that was kind of that became kind of fun to write. You're really good with the details uh in the book. One of the ones that sticks out to me in the beginning when um Lila's looking at Daniel and in the book she's in the the book reading line to get a book sign and she sees him obscured by a pillar. And then there's something else later on that I noticed you said with like a lipstick stain on something. It's just all these great details. What, what can a writer do who wants to be stronger on adding details? Well, you know, you took my 15-week class at the new school, so I really, really highly recommend um, classes, seminars. Um, I think what you never want to do is finish at 3 in the morning, decide it's brilliant, and send it to the New Yorker. Um, what you always want to do is you want to finish a draft and then have a system to get criticism before you rewrite. So I have lots of systems set up over the years that I've actually worked with with my therapist, and my therapist is one of my one of the uh, you know one of the core pillars, one of the systems that I use because um, you know it's frustrating and. On one hand, you want to, you know, you want to finish and get it out there when you meet great editors and agents. And on the other hand, if you do that too quickly, you screw up your whole career. So my particular system at this moment is um, everything I write. I have two really critical writing groups with the the best critics I know. So I, the minute I finish something, and and I've, I've workshopped. I'm on 10 books now, so I've workshopped all of them. So I bring in the pages, and I get criticism, and then I go back and rewrite. And then after I do that, I sometimes pay ghost editors who are either um, agents, former book editors, or authors of books that are similar, and I pay them to line edit and go over it also. So I would say that um, that really helps me, and I'm actually not great with details. I mean, I, I know God is in the details, um, intellectually and as a book critic, when I was a book critic, I, you know, I could definitely see if somebody was, you know, my students all the time are too vague in general and I'm constantly saying add a hundred more fleshed out details. Um, but so I need help with that. And quite often mm. the notes I'll get back from my critics are, you know, slow down. What is, you know, what does this look like? What does the restaurant look like? What is she wearing? You know, how does this smell? So, so I really need help with that. Hmm. There, there's a beautiful piece by Andre Hemen, um, the Balkan writer, that he did for Granta. Something about object, subject and object, and it's it it really really helped me when I was writing the Bosnia list because basically he had a line there. I'm paraphrasing, but the line was um, when he uses details. He basically said the detail either encapsulates his entire family history or it is nothing at all. Like that's the choice. Mm. 
and I was writing a scene for the Bosnia list where the, my co-author Kenan was um, he was at home with his mother and there was this Serb, um, this Christian Serb neighbor who was stealing things from his mother. And in the early draft, he was just, she was just stealing, I think I just said she was stealing clothes or she was stealing furniture, you know, which is of course too general. And then, um, then I read the piece by Hemant and I realized, oh my God, I better do these details really much better. And all of a sudden when I asked Kenan a million questions, the, the thing that he remembered that was stolen um, from the neighbor was a an embroidered tablecloth that Grandma Amina had made his mother. Hmm. And so when uh, Petra, the Serb woman, stole the tablecloth, she was stealing the grandmother. She was taking his family history. So that really, I mean, hmm. you know, you would think studying poetry hmm. taught me that, which it did many years ago. But there's something about the way Heman wrote it. So now when I write details, I, you know, I remember that. That's, you know, how important God is in the details. You know, you really have mm. to do it. Um, that actually happened to me also with, um, I was doing, I was trying for a modern love piece. And it was about, my first piece was about, um, in the New York Times column, my first piece was about how um, after 13 years of marriage, my husband decided to move in with me. And it was all about how he got rid of the apartment, the bachelor pad that he had all his stuff in. And he was moving all his stuff in with me. And it was kind of about how I had the illusion that we had this beautiful life, but he was really a hoarder who had all this hideous crap that he was now like shoving into my apartment, which just totally freaked me out. And the writing group was just like, write a list of the objects. Like, I can't see any of this. I would just say boyhood stuff. And so I really wrote a list of the objects and it was um, pink elephant ice cubes and 750 different color marbles in a bowl and a hundred white yarmulkes from um, our wedding uh, that were embroidered Sue and Charlie, Um, you know, and the more, Oh, it was not only the, um, all of his bar mitzvah um, reply cards, uh, but it was all the, um, all the gift cards on the invitations and a list of who came, like he just had bizarre stuff. But the minute that I wrote a list, and got really described it idiosyncratically. The whole piece took off and it sold. So, so I would mm. say that um, it's something I struggle with, but really, God is in the details. Mm. That's um, I think that's encouraging for people to hear. You know, it's through feedback and what uh, people are telling you to oh, strengthen this, what this, that you you become stronger at something that you felt that you not necessarily naturally good at, but. Oh, yeah. By the way, I do 10 revisions. I'll do 20 revisions. Mm. I'll just keep rewriting and rewriting. Mm. In fact, my first book from the time I started until the time I finished was 13 years. So instead of a book launch, I got a book mitzvah. Mm-hmm. But you, so I'll just keep I'll keep writing until until I get a sign off from everybody I respect, which is my writing group, sometimes a ghost editor, then my literary agent, and then sometimes it still doesn't sell, and then I go back and rewrite mm. again. So how do you distinguish – how do you – distinguish the feedback if you're not going to accept with criticism what goes off in you yeah with criticism from workshops Um, well one of the things is one of the things is that um i i'm very very careful who my critics are and it usually it has to be someone whose work i admire so within my writing group i chose these people to be in my writing group and when I pay ghost editors, I pay ghost editors who are agents, editors, or 
Um, I've read their books. Sometimes they're both. You know, they, they're, they're a writer and they've worked at Bantam or Doubleday or um, been a literary agent. Um, but but I feel like I feel really strongly too that when you take a class from a teacher or seminar, read their work because if you don't like their work, don't take a class from them. I, I feel like you, mm. you know, everybody has their own biases. Um, so I absolutely know who um, I, I absolutely know what someone's work is, and it doesn't mean just for example, I have a, a lot of young students who maybe haven't written that much. But they're good critics, but I definitely need to, you know, I definitely know where they're coming from. And also, um, you know, if, I, if, if I'm if i in doubt, what I do is I will um, listen to the criticism and um, sometimes I'll just try it. And here's an example of, of, of something I was very resistant to, which really helped me, which was when I did my first novel, um, it was called Speed Shrinking. And um, it was about a, an addiction, a girl who was an, uh, you know, was autobiographical, a former addict who who got addicted to uh, food addiction, uh, cupcake icing, actually. And I have a novelist, uh, a protege, Amy Koppelman, and she read the book, and I always use past tense, and she said, I really like this, just put the whole thing in present tense. So I was thinking to myself, you're crazy, I hate present tense. You know, like tabloids use present tense. I mean, once in a while you get a young adult novel that I like, or, a, you know, a not, uh, once in a while I'll... I'll read a book that I like, but I had never tried it. Um, but I really admired her, and there was something I, I admired her work, and she did present tense in a novel that I really liked. And the, there was something about the book that wasn't quite working. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to try present tense for two pages. So I just took the first two pages, and I put them in present tense, and I brought it into my writing group, and they were like, oh, my God, it pops. Like, this is so much mm. better. And it turned out that because it was about an addict – it it just it just works so much better for you to be going along inside her crazy head because if it was in past tense there would be t- there would be too much room for um sort of retrospective knowledge whereas if you're just oh. going along with a crazy addict who's flipping out and shoving cupcake icing in their in their and, and candy in their mouth it it was much more immediate so that was an example of somebody giving me criticism that I was very reluctant to take and yet I decided, okay, let me just try this and see if it's better. And I think most writers, I, I think you could tell, like like the minute I wrote it, I could tell something was happening. So I think sometimes you could tell if it's good criticism or not. But when in doubt, you you know, always have critics who are really tough, who will tell you the truth. And if you have somebody in your life that just says everything you write is brilliant, find somebody else. I mean, pay somebody, go to a class, go to a seminar, get a mentor. You need somebody who who has done what you want to do who will be very critical with you. Mm-hmm. So, Sue, so you often say that a page a day is a book a year. When you are writing, do you like follow that? Are you, uh, you set daily work Yes, I do, and I actually, count? I yes, and I stole that from my. I have, I had a best-selling mentor cousin who um, had published a lot of books. And whenever I think I once told him I had writer's block, and his response was, "Plumbers don't get plumbers block." Don't be self-indulgent. Just get to work every day, nine to five. Just it's a regular job. And then he used to, and then he added, a page a day is a book a year. And what I found is it's actually more than that because my books tend to be like 200, 250 pages. So yes, that is um, that is always my goal. Um, sometimes I change it up. So for example, I always give myself a deadline. I, I write nine to five, almost almost always seven days a week, and I just um, don't make any plans. I don't do breakfast. I don't do lunch. I don't go out. Um, I, I turn off the phone. I'm just very um, rigid about it, and um, which is which is how I've done 10 books in 11 years. Um, but so I give myself a very specific 
goal that day. Um, if it's a book, if I'm working on a book, then yes, a, um, you know, a page a day is a book a year, so I do at least one page, although sometimes I get a lot more. And um, and sometimes I'll say um, I have to revise this essay because I'm on deadline, you know, from an editor, or I have to revise this chapter. So every day I I absolutely write down, you know, what I have to finish. And what's great about having the two writing groups is that they give me deadlines. So I have a group every Thursday and every Sunday. So I wake up and I have to have the work ready that I'm going to bring in for the writing group. And, and maybe that would be an essay or a chapter or, you know, 10 pages a week or whatever it is. So um, so that helps. That's, that's really helped structure uh, my time. And what I tell everybody in my classes, you know, in terms of what, what's the secret of me being so prolific, I'm not afraid to suck. So my first drafts yeah. don't have to be good. They just have to be on the page. My job is getting them on the page, and then the job of the writing group and my critics and ghost editors and agents and book editors are to say, this isn't good or change this around. But, you, you know, your job as a writer is get it on the page. And, and, and I really try to get people to not be so, so perfectionistic that they can't, um, you know, what, what's that line? Um, Oh, it's funny. Once I told my husband, um, Ariana Huffington says, perfect is the enemy of done. But then his answer was, she's a whore because we hate Huffington Post because they don't pay writers. So it's sort of an interesting debate. But my way of writing is, you know, get it on the page first. Don't be afraid if it's not good enough. Just get it on the page. Hmm. So with that said, I'm trying to guess how you would answer this question. Do you prefer drafting the first time, like getting your ideas on the page? No, revising is much easier. No, the hardest part is getting it. To get, for me, the hardest part is the first draft, and then it's much, much easier to revise it because I have a good system, you know, because I'm bringing in a piece to the writing group, and then the writing group is saying to me, okay, start on page three. That's the most interesting line. And then, um, you know, working, it's what's so great about classes and seminars and writing workshops where you trust the, the opinions, um, or when you pay ghost editors, what's so great is that you get line edits that work. Mm-hmm. You know they improve the writing, so that's that's mm-hmm. what it's, that's actually exciting to go back to something with notes on it. That's very exciting. Mm-hmm. So what's never said is out on Heliotrope Books now. You've been uh, traveling. You're promoting. You have events coming up, and we'll have the link to your website in the show notes, so people can come out and support. What do you like most about what's never said? Well, again, I really I like the idea of a, a memoirist writing fiction about poetry. Um, I like that. I like. I, I always say with my students that writing is a way to turn your worst experiences into the most beautiful. So I like the fact that this was it was an autobiographical story that ended about a relationship that ended badly. So I I like the fact that um, I feel like I made something beautiful out of it. You know. Or, touching or poignant or people say that they um they you know that it taught them something or um you know so that, so I like that I like cuz it cuz it feels empowering you know cuz I never want to be a victim and um I also truthfully I like the fact that I stayed with it because I started this book about 6 years ago 7 years ago and it was frustrating and a lot of editors who read it said you know we really like this now can you just take out all the poetry and all the stuff about Manhattan and all the stuff about shrinks you know, and so it was frustrating. So I'm kind of, I kind of am proud of myself that I didn't give up on it and that I kept, kept going. And I think, you know, it now does work and I found an editor. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the world who have a book in them or have a novel in them that they never finish or that, or that they finish and they send out to a few places and it never, 
they, it never sees fruition. So I do feel like I'm giving myself credit for that. What guidelines do you have for people who would, are trying to turn their nonfiction into fiction? Well, that makes a lot of sense for, for a lot of my students because there's a lot of books that you can't write in nonfiction. For example, I couldn't have written this book in nonfiction because, number one, it wasn't dramatic enough. I mean, it was like a bad relationship that ended 30 years ago. You know, So so I think that's a good idea. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, I'm always going to wind up saying take a class, um, you know, take a class, take a seminar. I had a student who took a a seminar for like $150, how to sell your first book or how to sell a novel and got a $500,000 deal. So I just think there's so many, there's, there's so many things available and they're available online and there's great ghost editors that you could work with. Even international students, I could give you the names of people, email me profsue123 at gmail.com. Like if people email me, I will just give you the names of fantastic ghost editors. And if you could afford it, you could work with, I mean, it's not even that expensive. Sometimes it's just a few hundred dollars. So I feel like, um, I feel like you could always work with somebody great, but but basically I don't think, at least for me, I I couldn't write in a vacuum. Like I don't know that going going to a cabin and writing 300 pages without any feedback, I mean maybe that works for somebody, but with my students, and I have students all over the country, all over the world, I think getting feedback, it, you know, you have to write a chunk of whatever it is you're working on, but I think getting feedback could really give you good direction. So um that's one of the things that that I uh, I do. And there, somebody told me something really interesting. The Knopf editor Deb Garrison, who I work with at the New Yorker, once said to me, "I was trying to decide whether to my first book, Five Men Who Broke My Heart, should be a novel or a memoir." And she said, "A novel that is merely autobiographical is a great disappointment, but a memoir that reads like a novel is a great surprise." And so that really mm. stays with me. So if I'm writing a memoir, I want it to be page turner like a novel and I'll change things around and put in my author's note names, dates and personal characteristics have been changed for literary cohesion and my husband won't divorce me or something like that. But so I'll make my I try to make my memoirs more novelistic and with novels I make sure that it's not only autobiographical. So for example, what's never said started autobiographical, but then I really dramatize. There's a lot of things that never happened in real life. I never tried to kill myself. I never tried to I never had like a horrible public sexual crazy scene that happened in the book, um, you know, Daniel never married an Israeli. You know, there's a lot of things that didn't happen because I realized if I just told the autobiographical story, that's a disappointment. So I do think that you have to be careful if you're turning a true story into fiction. I do think you have to really up the stakes. And when it's fiction, you have a lot of room to make something, you know, more emotional, more um, dramatic and crazy. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I think when you know something comes from the – do you believe that the per, the person's first book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is always autobiographical? Like, does they have to just get it out? No, I mean, I certainly have students that have written, like, dystopian novels about, you know, Martians killing each other in outer space. You know, I so, no, not necessarily. You know, I think, mm-hmm. um, I think everybody's different, um, and I think there's all kinds of different um, – fiction or poetry or, you know, kids' books out there. Um, 
my work is. You know, I fell in love with confessional poetry, and, and basically everything I write is semi-autobiographical. In fact, I have to change it up a little bit because the, the story is always – I've had sort of a very non-dramatic life. You know, I basically am from Michigan, had stupid relationships, stupid addictions, moved to New York, went to therapy, got a good husband. That's the whole story. So, And, and everything I write, there's always like the Midwest girl who leaves home to, to you know, and then moves to the big city and, you know, get, finds – you know, um, has has luck in in work and love. You know, and so I, I got to change that up a little bit. In fact, part of the part of what was so great about co-authoring Unhooked and Bosnia List was I had these two very very different male voices. One was a wasp, and one was a Muslim, Bosnian Muslim, and they just had such dramatic stories. And it was so exciting to write in first person because, you know, I've been telling the same story over and over and over again for so long, and it was so exciting to have, you know, because I because I'm you know I, I gravitate towards autobiographical stories in first person. So maybe that's why I like helping my students too, because I get my fingers right in there. You know, everybody, I have such a diverse range of students and I sort of love hearing the, the, all the different stories and helping them with it because, you know, my story isn't that dramatic really. Mm. Mm. So there's another great line, by the way, though, which is the other great line is um, if you got the story, tell it, if you ain't got it, write it. So, for example, with uh, Kenan, who was a war survivor, we, he could just tell me the story, and that just wound up great on the page. Whereas with my my work, I have to I have to fight a lot harder to make it funnier, or dramatic, or more extreme, since since it isn't dramatic. Mm. Mm. So, of all your stories, you have uh, ten books in eleven years. Let's imagine that the aliens came down. They found you know they found that other Earth, right? That's like an identical Earth. If we find that there are aliens and they're interested in learning about your work, who Sue Shapiro is, what two books would you tell them to read? Yeah, I mean, I'm still at the point where my first two memoirs, Five Men Who Broke My Heart and Lighting Up, I think those were really, um, you know, I'd been writing for 23 years before I got books. So those, you know, and I feel like I'm most... um, I'm most graceful in first person. I'm most, it's funny. It's, you know, there, it's sort of, um, I think those two are probably, you know, my two breakup books are probably the closest to who I am. I would say that, um, the Bosnia list, um, is because it's about ethnic cleansing. Maybe, maybe I see that as the most important, you know, so politically or in terms of what I'm leaving the world, the fact really, really the two books, the co-authored books, one was about addiction and, uh, you know, Unhooked and Bosnia List was about the Bosnian War. So maybe those two would be um, the most helpful to other people on the planet. Mm. But I would say if, if the question was what's closest to my own voice, definitely Five Men and Lighting Up. Mm. So are you working on anything else now? I feel like you already have Oh, yeah, I have a nonfiction. Yeah, I'm going back to nonfiction. I have one more memoir in me. It's actually out with editors and agents now, although nobody does anything in August. So, yeah, I have one more book that I'm working on, a nonfiction, that um, that I think is sort of encompasses everything I've done. I, I feel like it'll be like one more big book. Um, they say that uh, writing is a way to talk without being interrupted, and I come from a family with four kids very close in age. So I, I feel like, and also I I was an addict, a smoker and drinker until I was 41. So there's definitely been a sense of making up for lost time. And I do feel like there's one other story that I'm telling, one other nonfiction that I'm telling, and then maybe I'll teach. <laughs> you know, I'll chill out a little bit. Oh, I'm here. I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know how I feel about this, Sue. <laughs> 
but in the meantime, I have tons of I have tons of book <laughs> events. I'm doing I'm doing great book events. Um, actually, one of my students, Aspen Matus, has a new memoir, Girl in the Woods, that she dedicated to me, and we're the perfect teacher student duo because my book is. She actually helped me get the 20 year old voice. Um, for my book, and I helped her get her older voice for the memoir. So we're doing book events in New York on August 8th and mm-hmm. 11th that are free and open to the public. Um, the uh, August uh, September 8th is at the Barnes & Noble at 86 and Lex. And the new school, we're doing a great event. And all these events are with her agents and editors and the Modern Love Editor who bought her, her first piece. So we're doing events together, and then we're going to go to L.A., and we're doing some events together at L.A. I think it's September 15th at the um, Santa Monica Barnes & Noble. So so that'll be really fun because, you know, you sit at your desk for five or six years, so it's very exciting to go promote it and mm-hmm. see what it does mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Side question on the promoting. When an author gets in advance for a book, do they have to save some of that money to pay for their own, like, travel and book promotions? I think every book is different and every publisher is different. So some publishers, the big publishers sometimes um, want you to go on a book tour. So, for example, with Kenan, they sent him for Bosnia List. Um, it was a uh, Viking Penguin. They sent him to um, 10 different cities where Bosnians, where there were a lot, an enclave of Bosnians, and they paid for that. Um, and I think with Aspen, they're going to send her to um, a lot of colleges because her book is about being a college student who dropped out of school after she was raped. So every publisher is different. I've done it both ways. I've done it where the publisher wants me to travel and they pay for some stuff. Um, but truthfully, in this age of publishing, the more an author can do on their own, the smarter you are. So I, um, you know, basically what I do is um, I try to combine any travel that I'm going to do anyway. I do, I, I, I combine it with book events. So, for example, I was visiting my family in Michigan, and I did two really great book events um, at my local temple and at a West Bloomfield Barnes & Noble. So it was like the perfect combo because I was paying to go anyway, but then I can write off part of the trip because it really was business. So I would say it's really good for – the, the more that you could do on your own um, it, these days in publishing, the better off you are because you're just hmm. – Unless you're like already a best-selling author, you have to find your audience. And I think um, the more even um, they all look at right now, they look at your blogs and your social media and, um, you know, do you have audiences that you could go speak to in your field? Platform is like a really big thing, both for fiction and nonfiction now and even YA. So I help my students figure that out. You know, I mean, obviously the most important thing is writing a great book, but just because you write a great book doesn't mean it's going to be published or it's going to do well. So I've been doing uh-huh. this so many years that, you know, you spend so many years on a book, you want to increase the odds that, you know, that it does well in the world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My final question for you is, if you were a superhero, what would your writing superpower be? What's your secret weapon? Um, well, in my own work, dialogue, I'm really good at dialogue. In fact, interestingly, I once got a bad review a really bad review, but in the middle of the bad review, the critic said um, <clears throat> there was a there were these walk and talk scenes, and they said we're we're because I really do walk with my students um, for my office hours. I do speed walking office hours, so the the critic said um, the walk and talks are like Aaron Sorkin dialogue, and I so of course mm-hmm. I use that as a pull quote. But I would say my writing superpower for my own work is 
that I, um, I'm really good at dialogue, and that comes really quickly. In fact, sometimes I just write a whole scene. I just write 10 pages of dialogue, and then I go fill it in after because that just comes really easy for me. But I would say my true superpower on the planet is that I'm really – I just have this uncanny ability to look at somebody's work and to tell them what's wrong and how to fix it. And um, my stargazer actually told me, I have a, a Jungian astrologer I call Stargazer, who's a character in a lot of my work, but he said to me a long time ago, you will take other people higher than you take yourself. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been true, and I've come to terms with it. I've written about it, but I've come to terms with it. But I just, um, I can look at something, and it's not just, like when I was a book critic, I could say what's wrong with it. I was a book critic for 15 years. I, I could immediately know what's wrong with something, but it felt a little bit empty because, you know, hurting an author who's been writing a book for 10 or 15 years by pinpointing this is what's wrong and showing off how smart you are was unfulfilling. So in a way, what's been so exciting teaching these last 23 years is I can read somebody's work and not only know what's wrong with it, but I could tell them how to fix it. And I've analyzed where do I get that ability. And in my family, I come from a family of doctors, and I thought we had nothing in common, but what they always did, they played the disease game at dinner. So one would say the symptoms, and and my dad would say the symptoms, and my brother would diagnose. So it was 42-year-old Cambodian refugee vomiting blood, schistosomiasis, is past the potatoes, but then they would talk about how do you treat the guy. So I think I became like a, a book doctor or you know a writing doctor because it's not only immediately figuring out what's wrong with it, but what do you do? You know, do they need surgery? Do you outpatient? Do you give them physical therapy? Do they need a second opinion? So I think that I unconsciously emulated my dad and brothers. But anyway, so I, I think my superpower on the planet is being able to, um, you know see the potential in a piece quite often a student will send me something really um very very rough and i'll just say i could see this in the new york times like kenan showed me the first three pages about he never written anything before about the bosnia list and i just had a flash it was going to be in the lives column and it was and then it wound up in like the best american essays and english wasn't even his first language so weirdly that seems to be my superpower and i used to resent it but now i'm embracing it i think it's now it's become teaching has become a second calling Mm. Maybe it gets you know, good karma. I, you know, maybe I get good karma I, because, you know, because in a way, you know, I've hogged so much of the um, time and space having 10 books in such a short period of time. So I think it sort of knocks the edge off of my ambition and arrogance to always be helping other people. I have 15,000 former students. So I feel like that, mm. um, you know, that like I'm I feel like I'm taking a lot from the world, but I also feel like I'm giving back as much as I can, both with charity and volunteering. I taught at Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen for 13 years, but I also think with my students that that's a way of um, – what's great about it is not only is it a way to give back, I think it's a way to take all the mistakes and the failures and the disappointments that I've had and to turn them into something worthwhile because I make sure that my students don't do the same stupid mistakes that I did. Mm-hmm. You know, it – just hearing you say that, and that's what I always tell people about you when I recommend, I say, who's my mentor? When I recommend someone struggling with an essay, I say, oh, why don't you go to Susan Shapiro's website, take her essay class. You have that ability. Like, I've seen you in your workshops, and you just zero in, okay, nope, this, this, it sounds like this, needs to be this, and you just really can just focus in on it exactly like you said. And I all and you have actually one of your um, essay a one night instant essay seminar coming up on um, August twenty sixth. Yeah, I do that um, long distance too. Can, a lot of people mm-hmm. can um, they can send me pieces long oh. distance. 
So I do really? that. I actually even have, yeah, I have um, I have a lot of clients all over the country and a few in Australia and New Zealand. Um, but so, um, yeah, and and I think it's like I said, it's a it's a weird it's a weird quirky ability, but I use it now for good. And also, I it took me a really long time to make a living as a writer because I studied poetry and then I worked at the New Yorker for four years, but I wasn't quite like a serious journalist doing um, you know investigative pieces. So it really took me a long time to figure out how to make a living. I was 43 when I did my first memoir. So what's really exciting is now I've been doing this so long, I know exactly what editors want. And so just for an example, like Aspen takes my class and she's 21 and she's an undergrad and she just, her goal in life was to get published. So she could just say to me, how do I start? And I'm just like, write a 1500 word New York Times modern love. She told me a story I liked. I gave her the assignment write three pages on your most humiliating secret. She told me her story about getting raped. I'm like, write that. Here's the editor, send it to, and she could just launch a career. You know, so I really, same with Kenan. I just love doing that because, remember, it took me 23 years to figure it out. So it's so exciting to be able to take all the mistakes and frustration and craziness and failure and just put it all in a class or a seminar and just say to students, okay, just, you know, here's the way to break in quickly. You know, if you want to cut through, if you don't want to waste 23 years being broke and struggling and doing secretary work and transcribing and, you know, being depressed in therapy, here's a way to sidestep. It. So I will say that it's it's actually the classes are exciting for me, and it, and it's kind of a vicarious thrill because now I've been doing it so long that maybe getting published isn't quite as exciting as it used to be. But helping somebody with seeing somebody the look on their face when they first get it, you know when they first publish a piece or they see their first book, it's so that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. It reminds me why I moved here and why I do what I do. Well, I'm glad you moved there. I'm glad you do what you do. Um, I can't imagine what my writing career would be like if I hadn't met you at the new school. Like I published Thank you. my yeah, you published nonfiction a piece out of yeah, out of taking one of your weekend workshop classes. Um, so thank you for being you. Thank you. Well, thanks for interviewing me. You're welcome, and good luck with what's never said. And everyone, I truly, truly advise you to go to SusanShapiro.net and click on her events and classes link and check out what's coming up. Get in where you fit in because if you have a good idea, she will tell you and she will help you. It is well, 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 well worth it. 